Yo, this hot, this the spot, there it is, pod.com. We're interviewing the best comedians, so tune in quick and get your ears receiving them. We're talking about life and life to stream right to you from the microphone right to your home, dude. Side note, this might get embarrassing, but no, don't sweat, yo, because there it is. Welcome to the There It Is Podcast, a comedy podcast to help you find your inspiration. I'm your host, Jason Farr. Let's do this. Great episode for you today. We have Tavish Forsyth on. I'm very excited to share that episode with you. But before we get to that, I do want to uh, just mention a couple of things that uh that's been going on finally went to a live comedy show for the first time in well over a year now last night and uh, it was great went to littlefield here in brooklyn and saw gary goldman and a bunch of other funny comics perform and i think gary goldman was one of the last if not the last shows that i saw before the shutdown he's so great he's still so great he looks like frank zappa now because he's He's grown out the facial hair a little bit, and the, his hair is longer. He looks like Frank Zappa. And uh, it was great. It was really fun seeing a show again. And uh, Littlefield is a great venue. I've seen Joe Firestone there. I've seen North Coast there. Really great venue. But here's an awesome thing going on, because I know many of you are not in New York City. Many of you are not even in the U.S. And by the way, if you're in another country, thank you so much for listening. I didn't really ever anticipate that when I started this podcast, and it's really cool that there are people that are listening outside of America. So, hey, uh, thanks. Thanks. Uh, But wherever you are, uh, there are a lot of these shows that are also being live streamed. So there are live shows happening at like Bell House and Littlefield, two really great venues in Brooklyn, New York. And It'll be like $12, $15 for a ticket live, but they'll also just charge like 5 bucks for a live stream ticket. I highly suggest that you do that because, you know, then when I was in South Carolina and just seeing on social media all these shows that were happening up here, I was saying, ah, I just had FOMO like crazy. And now there's access to these shows. So I strongly suggest you check those out so you can go to Littlefield or the Bell House and I don't know if like Comedy Cellar or any place like that is doing it but just look online see who's doing that who see who has a live stream option and and check out these shows and maybe there are even other states doing it like if there's something going on in Portland or LA or, or somewhere check out shows I think it'd be dope to support these venues that are in other places because they really got hit in this last year. Okay, today's guest is Tavish Forsyth. Tavish is a trained actor with two degrees in theater, and he has studied at the Baltimore Improv Group, the Powerhouse Theater, and IO Theater, and he is the founder of Bird City Improv. And we got connected because of previous guest, Brian James O'Connell. He just suggested that we talk, and this is Honestly, one of my favorite discussions that I've had on here, and it it flowed really well. Tavish is awesome, very insightful, very thoughtful, and very funny and sweet, and I just loved him. 
And I, I really, really enjoyed talking to him. And this starts in a very interesting way. He had a Star Trek, the next generation background on his Zoom. And I was like, oh, is that, is that next generation? <laughs> Which I don't even know that much about Star Trek, but I recognize that. And we started talking about that. And then it just sort of naturally went into the interview. So we drop right in here and stay till the end because he shares something that I really appreciated at the very end of the conversation. So here's my chat with Tavish Forsyth. I don't know much about Star Trek. My brother is the one who knows about Star Trek. And uh, I recognize that as uh, Next Generation. However, I don't know enough about the others, except for the first one. To have yeah. uh, like, like I saw that and was like, "Oh, next generation." But then I thought, I guess that could be Deep Space Nine or Voyager. I don't really know. <laughs> yeah, all the ones in the '90s have a very similar aesthetic. Which, mm-hmm. as a Star Trek nerd, I, I appreciate. Like, it's very clear. Like the crossover. It doesn't feel like you know, like some like franchises will exist in the same universe, but one movie uh-huh. will feel like a totally different universe in the other movie yeah. <laughs> yeah i totally know that's one of the things my brother will uh sort of nitpick about some of these things like the continuity is so off from the newer productions uh yeah it seems yeah the newer stuff is bizarre to me some of it is okay but most of it just feels like a i don't know like the directors of fast and the furious got their hands on star trek or something <laughs> like it didn't something of, went wrong at Paramount, and I don't know what. Didn't Justin Lin do one of the Star Trek movies? I don't know who Justin Lin is. I think he is a fan. I don't. We only just saw the uh, forty minutes of the first Fast and Furious movie the other day, and mm-hmm. we're only watching them for like kind of like ironically, so we can like laugh at the ridiculousness of that universe because it gets really insane. Like a friend was. I've heard a few friends laugh about that universe, but yeah. one the other day was telling us how the first one is just about busting people who are stealing DVDs and DVD players or something like that. And then you get, take the last movie and it's like super powered humans and like all this sort of random ridiculousness that yeah. it's like, how did this universe come out of a movie that was about trying to bust these peep street racers who were who were just moving product illegally right yeah and it probably like i haven't seen them but i assume that when they made the first one they didn't like have the whole series mapped out so then for them it's just this act of like continually heightening and uh-huh. sort of like improvising their way through the franchise people like this let's just double down on that for the next movie yeah right right and i it's really funny um but i think the third recent star trek movie like there's jj abrams had two and i think the third one was directed by someone who i believe has directed a a fast and furious movie i i feel like i've only heard his name mentioned in regards to those interesting interesting i thought i was just making that up you know to be sort of shady towards <laughs> but i the think friend. it's but actually like it, it's i'm it laughing a little bit but also i feel a little like angered that that is mm. the actual truth yeah i understand that yeah. yeah my my brother has gotten real angered with this stuff i don't know if you pay any attention to the red letter media but those guys hate um 
what the universe has become because they were they I think they stopped watching Picard because it was just flying in the face of so much of yeah. uh, what the next generation was about. So they were just mm-hmm. like, oh, this they really changed all the characters and it's really bad. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I. I don't, I, did, I can empathize. I, I will say I watched Picard. That's like, I had distanced myself from the franchise, but I came back for Picard and I, I did like it. They mm-hmm. definitely took liberties. It definitely is not the same show, <laughs> right? Because now instead of living in like a utopian future, it's like a dystopian future. Uh, so that feels like a really. Uh, that's a like, thumb in the eye there. About about star trek right because the whole idea is like we've evolved past war we've evolved past hunger and now we're just exploring and like just seeing what the ins and outs of cultural exchange are right and then like the episode ended up being this morality play about cultural exchange um i mean some of them would be like a like a whodunit some of them might be a love story, but most of them are these like morality plays, which I found really interesting as a younger person. Um, yeah. So they, they sort of like dropped that format a little bit, but I will say I liked Picard and I liked that they made Seven of Nine queer. I oh, thought cool. that was Seven of Nine is like this. Um, is that Jerry Ryan's character? Jerry Ryan's character mm-hmm. from Voyager. That's Voyager. all I know. <laughs> She was one of the Borg, like she was assimilated into this like cybernetic zombie race. Mm -hmm. uh, And it was this really powerful metaphor uh, for surviving abuse. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was this, it was a really great theme and sort of storyline that lasted multiple seasons throughout Star Trek Voyager. And I just loved that they brought her character back. And I loved uh, how her character evolved. And I thought it was amazing that she was openly queer and it wasn't like a thing, you know, it wasn't like now I'm going to come out of the closet. It was just sort of like it happened. It's in the Mm -hmm. past, but like, it's very clear that you were in this relationship with this person. And that felt great because there, you know, despite Star Trek being in this like utopian inclusive, supposedly future, uh, there's no queer people. Yeah. That is yeah. interesting, and that's because people at the time making it were either against sharing that or couldn't for whatever reason, or maybe even afraid to share it because of where the world was, where society was at that time. Yeah, one of the interesting thing I could I could we could never talk about improv and only talk about <laughs> Star Trek. <laughs> I'm willing to, uh, but, but last thought on the queerness in Star Trek was there were a few episodes from the 90s, like capsule episodes, where they did address gender nonconformity and they did address uh, queerness and even uh, transgender topics uh, as well, which um, those sort of like episodes were amazing, but like it was the the way that it was framed was kind of like this is an extraordinary moment that is not uh, yeah. like part of our central mm-hmm. arc like none of our characters are going to be queer and we're never going to talk about it except for these moments but mm-hmm. you know progress happens very glacially sometimes yes a lot of the things that you're talking about all these layers that you are bringing out of star trek ones that because i 
didn't watch it as much, didn't pick up on, it's really showing why you're an adjunct professor at John Hopkins, right? That's right. Yep. You have a couple of degrees in theater, uh, but let's go back a little bit. Are you from Maryland? I grew up in New Hampshire. I was born in Lowell, Massachusetts, which mm-hmm. is a small city outside of Boston. Uh, but most of my childhood and teenage years were spent in New Hampshire. And in 2011, I moved to uh, Maryland, to Baltimore County, uh, to study theater and film uh, and English. And then I stuck around. I stuck around because I really liked the improv scene in Baltimore. I got exposed to the improv scene in Baltimore. Okay. Um, And so you didn't do improv before that? Did I do improv before that? Right. Like in, in high school, we did like freeze, but it was the worst. Uh, like, <laughs> yeah. And that isn't just like my teenage drama club trauma speaking. It was like, it was, it was just the worst, right? There was no explanation of like concept or like, you know, here's how you improvise well. It was just like a bunch of like really nervous pubescent drama nerds mm-hmm. clapping their hands and screaming for like 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that I was my experience get with improv before. Yeah. So and the, I had a similar experience, but in college where it was sort of like, uh, this isn't exciting me about the idea of improv. Um, but yeah. later, later you got into it. And so you're saying in college was when you really got into improv. Yeah, it was a prerequisite course or required course for uh, my major. Uh, and at first, I just I, I, I took this class um, with this improviser named Bruce Nelson, who has been doing improv for quite a long time in the Baltimore area. And I liked it. I liked it a lot. I liked it enough to take another class. There was an elective kind of like advanced improv class. Mm-hmm. And uh, that teacher, uh, Joe Brady, was a alumni from uh, I.O. and had us read Truth and Comedy and also suggested uh, like improvised scene from the inside out and the UCB manual. And so it was around that time where I think like I really got hooked because really the idea of yes and I just felt was very, um, very liberating for me. Uh, it helped me come out of the closet, uh, which is no small thing. Mm -hmm. And it helped me with some other things and other challenges and discoveries that I made in my 20s as well. But definitely it was that second class. Um, And you know what it was? He, as an assignment, said, go to Baltimore and watch an improv show and write an essay on it. Which I wasn't particularly excited about, uh, but I went, and my mind was blown. My mind was blown at like how how good the I, I don't even remember like what the scene was any of the scenes, but I just remember laughing and thinking like this was surprisingly great, uh, and it was just on the second floor of a bar, uh, like it wasn't in like some amazing venue, and that made me think that there's a there's a there there. There's some there's something about this. So between that and coming out, I was like, okay, let me uh, 
let me try to keep this in my repertoire. And then over the years, I sort of gradually shifted away from scripted material and more towards improv uh, until 2018, where I was like, you know what, this is what I'm going to do exclusively. Mm. Uh, the script be damned. <laughs> so yeah, I don't really touch scripts that often. I'm still interested. Like I love writing. Um, I would do a scripted play again if I felt like it spoke to me on a really visceral and spiritual level. Um, but I haven't seen that script yet. <laughs> in, meantime, <laughs> in the meantime, uh, improv gives me all of those feelings and more. Um, you and and if you don't want to go into it, that's totally fine. But there was something interesting you said about it about improv helping you come out. Yeah. Uh, how did that have that impact on you? Like, in what ways do you mean that? Well, I think queer people are uh, constantly being gaslit into thinking that their identity is not okay. Yeah. Uh, even if, as with my case, I, I wasn't living, and I'm very thankful for this, I didn't grow up in a home that was um, gay bashing. You know, my, my family was not uh, part of the evangelist right uh, and was not... Um, going around saying like i'm like i'm thinking about swearing here dropping some slurs and i don't want to do that on your podcast you can do it <laughs> but they're you... not saying that queers are going to go to hell right they're not saying that um and i was very thankful for that but you know it's still it's in the media it's in the messaging it, there's like microaggressions out the wazoo uh there's bullying in high school and, you know, even if your parents say something like, there's nothing wrong with gay people, there's still so many other homophobic things that they end up saying sort of unknowingly. Well, yeah, but and even not to cut you off, but even just saying, well, there's nothing wrong. You're, it's like they're still commenting on something. They never That's say right. that about being straight. Yes. There's this I've literally heard one person my mode. entire life say that being straight is not being moral. One person. No, mm. I, that is not a topic of conversation otherwise, because right. people have normalized straightness. Right. But anything mm. else is other. And that is inherently dismissive of yes. queer people. And that is that is a problem. Yes. Uh, and, and most people don't think about it in such a complex and nuanced way, and we really need to. Mm -hmm. uh, and that seemingly good-natured but still problematic way of thinking about queerness reminds me of this Seinfeld episode where uh, one of the guest characters is gay and it, it's sort of like a recurring bit like every time it comes up there's a laugh line and th there's this catchphrase throughout the episode where every character says not that there's anything wrong with that Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's saying, the one where there's anything wrong with that. And, yeah, Jerry and I remember loving that, that episode. I loved that episode when I was younger. Uh, and my family loved that episode, too. And they would say it a lot. Um, or on the TV show Friends, which I also used to really like in almost every single episode. Uh, Ross or Chandler, Joey's masculinity is called into question. Mm -hmm. Their sexual orientation is called into question. It's always mm -hmm. the laugh line. Uh, 
not to mention the fact like the other problematic things happening with friends right which we could go into but i don't really want to um anyway so there was this big part of me that was just uh really repressed and in denial about uh who i was and what i wanted and i think just reading about yes and having it explained to me and then also having the experience of really activating it and embodying it on stage and realizing that when you're in a scene this is what you got you need to accept it you need to affirm your experience you need to affirm the other person's experience and then try to make the most of it and it was like a light bulb went off in my head uh and i remember thinking like i don't want to die right i don't want to live the rest of my life uh continuing to say no to this part of me that uh i want to explore and so that was kind of like uh the first brick in a wall of internal homophobia um or internalized homophobia that uh fell and is still falling most of it's gone but you know those traumas can be deep absolutely yeah it's something that um a lot of people in our society don't realize because uh, i mean i experience it in my way as a black man who's brought up in the south and mm-hmm. there is a lot of internalized self-hatred that can come from just the way the world i mean what was normal what was quote unquote uh, treated as standard normal uh was being a white person but specifically a white male Mm -hmm. straight uh Mm -hmm. you know wife and kids but you're the Mm -hmm. leader that's what's normalized and that stuff still those sort of ideas uh still exist today and it's not just like this big you know like uh like a kkk member sort of way that it exists it's still like within our system and Mm -hmm. that affects that has affected queer people, that has affected people of color, and that's affected women. And yeah. so there this is this unlearning that we individually have to do, but there's also an unlearning that our society has to do uh, as well. But that stuff is so internalized that it is, mm-hmm. it's hard to pinpoint uh, in the moment, and it's hard to reckon with, I guess, for a lot of people. But obviously there's a greater need to overcome that difficulty uh, just so that we can address it appropriately. Yeah. Um, And I I think it's just this continual sort of internal work that marginalized people need to do um, in not only like self-acceptance and accepting that like yes this this is how i grew up yes this is what i taught yes this is uh how other people behaved around me or this is how i behaved um there's this i'm, I'm trying to think how to put it I'll, I'll I'll give an example. Maybe that will help me a little. Like uh, I I think of like when I first started going through puberty. That's when I started being very you know aware of my body and other people's bodies and how those bodies how certain bodies made me feel. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it also made me like very keenly aware of, uh, you know, gender role differences. And I remember like making a very conscious effort to walk down the hall in a very masculine machismo kind of way. I remember making a very conscious effort not to sway my hips as I walked. And and I don't even know if I swayed my hips a lot before then. I just knew that if I did that thing, that I might be teased. Some people would call me out. Uh, you know, they'd say, oh, you sound gay. Uh, if, if I speak with a little bit of a higher pitched voice or a little bit more of a sing songiness in my voice. Uh, and... I was very conscientious of that. So I, I tried to intentionally like lower my voice. And when you try to do that and you, you, you do it so well that it goes on autopilot that when you do discover or you start to accept this other side of yourself and you start to be a little bit more identity conscious, culture conscious, community conscious, uh, and, and maybe you want to start transforming your, your self-concept, right? The the image of who you think you are. You want to transform that not only for other people, but specifically for you, right? So like as a queer person, and this has sort of been like the journey of my 20s is, is realizing like beyond just me being sexually attracted to men, like what does it mean for me to be queer just in my, in my presentation and my behavior in terms of like, uh, like gender expressiveness. And so it's been very, uh, like, like for instance, moving my hands with like great gestures or like allowing myself to, you know, get a little uh, higher pitched. Cause I think like back in the day, if, if you were to talk to me and I was still closeted and you would just come up, I would, uh, I would speak down here mm. and I would make sure not to, I, I think even like my facial expression would be less animated you know i'd be very like stone-faced uh i would never i would never cross my legs and i don't like doing any of that i love crossing my legs i love talking with my hands i love snapping and clapping and 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 you know having a high-pitched voice or squealing in public or like whatever like i just love being that part of me but there's still so many times of the day or times of the week where maybe i'm out in public or talking to someone and i realize that i unconsciously kind of like code switch back into that safer, more heteronormative uh-huh. uh, person that I, I once strive to be. And then like, I sort of have like this internal feeling of like guilt or shame. Like, why did I do that? Like, why, why did I feel uncapable or in, why did I feel like I need to conform to what this other person expects of me to make them feel uh-huh. comfortable and to make me feel safer and and did i really need to do that like was my safety actually in jeopardy uh or was it just me kind of like flexing my ability to access cisgender privilege my ability to access heteronormative privilege because i because i can but maybe like that doesn't necessarily just because i can doesn't mean i necessarily want to or that that is necessarily the m- most authentic version of me that I want to present. Uh, and so I guess in summation, what I'm saying is that it is not just like you have this realization once of like, wow, I grew up in a culture that was predominantly straight or wow, I grew up in a culture that was uh, predominantly white and my identity was not 
really represented or my community was um, not well thought of uh, in the culture in which I was raised, that that is not a realization that happens once. It's a realization that continues to happen because of our external experiences. And then it sort of like forces us uh, to be really like introspective for a second. Mm-hmm. I, for one, really appreciate you sharing that. And I am seeing a lot in my experience um, because there is that code switching and there is a lot of questioning your own presentation. Um, like that, At least that's the experience I had because growing up in the 90s when thug rappers is what everyone thought being black was, mm-hmm. even black people pushed that narrative. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you weren't presenting like that, then people would actually say like, oh, you act white or something like, to that effect. And it's like, have you seen a person from Chicago, a black person from Chicago? Because they act a lot more like me than like thug rappers from Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. So it has nothing to do with what they do or their skin color. It has to do with where they're from. People like mm-hmm. these rappers were acting the way they act because they're from New York City. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they were acting that way uh, because they were black. And then you can look, and also you just go back in time, you look at black people from Harlem in the Harlem Renaissance. They were still more like me than they were like some rapper from Harlem or something like that. So yeah. it, it really start make, started making me think like, well, I feel black, and I feel like I represent that. And it's only been recently that you hear people say, like, there are many different ways to be black. But people weren't saying that when I was an impressionable kid. Mm-hmm. And it it messed with my head. And uh, I still, especially now, when I look back and I just see how effed up it really was it just makes me resent a lot of things from uh from before because i wasn't wrong in in the way i was being and and the way i felt about who i was as a person and i didn't need to be different to be black and i hated that i ever felt that way it's really frustrating especially when it like comes down to something as stupid as the race of the musician you're listening to like it was Right. Honestly, I mean, like, you know, if if I told someone in the 90s I listened to Sting, then they'd be like, oh, that's not white to do. I mean, that's not very black to do. But then you ha- mm-hmm. have, like, you you go back and look at Eddie Murphy in 48 Hours singing Roxanne by the police. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, is that, are we going to really say now? You know, or like, I don't know. Yeah. It's just really obnoxious. And then you have, like, people like Rick Rubin who, produced and like made the beats for all these hip hop songs that were influencing uh, uh, hip hop in general. And uh, the influence he had on rap is, is pretty, pretty high. And, uh, and then like some beats that have been sampled were played by white musicians. So it's like, what is, how can we say what is black or white based on music when it's all so like connected, right? So, yeah. you know, there is a lot of, um, like, I mean, I don't want to say neuroses, but something that gets us in our heads about who we are as people based on just, like, what society and culture puts on us to feel 
uh, when they're the ones who are wrong. Yeah. I don't think it's too great of a word to say neuroses, right? I mean, that's oppression is the cruel and unjust treatment of either a person or a group of people. And that cruel and unjust treatment isn't just physical violence, although it often comes in that form. It's also psychological violence and psychological abuse. Um, And that includes microaggressions. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was reading recently how microaggressions is kind of like a poor word for what it is, right? Because a microaggression is psychological trauma. And I suppose you could analogize it to a paper cut if you want, right? As opposed to being like hit in the head with a hammer. It's like death by a thousand paper cuts. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't change the fact that it is hurting you. It's causing you to bleed. And Mm -hmm. when there is a dominant culture that is not uh, inclusive, that does not see the dignity and humanity and diversity within the subcultures or within the the non-dominant culture um, that is going to cause neuroses. Mm -hmm. And I actually think it's a two-way neuroses too. I don't think it's just like neuroses of the people who are oppressed, the people that have been victimized by trauma, abuse, and oppression. I also think it's on the side of the oppressors as well. I think when you look at someone and you can't see them as an individual or when you look at a culture and you can't see that culture or that community as uh, unique and diverse and textured, then there is something neurotic about you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hope I understand like we don't like like using the word neurotic might could be labeled like ableist perhaps um and I hope that is not my that is not my intention using that word and if anyone's right, hearing that's this, how I took it yeah. wow this guy sounds really ableist right now I am sorry uh but I do think there is something psychologically harmful mm-hmm. about oh, yeah. uh and it's a two-way street absolutely absolutely um there was something you mentioned a few minutes ago about how you haven't really touched scripts because they haven't, and I'm somewhat putting words in your mouth, but they just haven't had the deeper impact on you uh, that yeah. you would like a script to give you before you uh, embark on, on trying to act it out. Mm-hmm. Um, does that mean that you are getting that sort of emotional deep impact through improv? Are you exploring things deeper uh, i get that impression that you must if you have conversations that are as deep as the one that you're presenting now yes yeah so i love dramatic improv i love social justice and socially conscious improv um and i love being emotive and vulnerable in improv scenes and i also love improv comedy and i love game mm-hmm. uh and I love wacky characters. Mm-hmm. And I, I also don't think that the two need to be separate. I, when I teach dramatic improv, I always tell my students that, you know, some people hear dramatic improv and they think tragic improv, right? right? Like every single scene that we're about to see needs to be the uh, super traumatic, right. and super, super tragic. It doesn't need to be. Uh, drama is just theatrical storytelling. And that can include tragedy and comedy. And I think they coexist 
really well together, like yin and yang. So if you're, if I do comedy, um, and I really like doing duos. I like being on stage just like with one other person for like at least 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, because you can find all of those comedic moments, but you can also find these uh, moments where you could hear a pin drop um, because we're talking about something real and 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 moving. And it does fill me with that uh, exhilaration uh, that I don't uh, often get from theater yeah 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 that's very interesting yeah it's I mean obviously you can get it in reading a script but I mean by the time that's on stage it might be a little harder for it to have that same impact uh, because you've been delving into that script so much uh, Mm -hmm. and rehearsing the lines so much Mm -hmm. but I guess with the a show, an improv show, you're able to delve into it in the moment that that vulnerability can be there every time you perform because you don't know what's coming next and you don't know how you're going to be affected next. Right. One of one of the questions that I hear a lot when when doing scripted theater, like especially on the first day of rehearsal when there's like a table read is why here? Why now? Why are we doing this play right here? Why are we doing this play right now? And I think the answers that people give often feel like bullshit to me. Uh, Like, I don't really think there is a reason why we need to be doing Hamlet right now and right here. no matter how you're deciding to cast or Mm -hmm. play with gender in it, or I don't know the the way that you're changing the ending, like none of that feels super relevant to, I think this current moment that we're in. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's because they decided to do the play before they thought about what was needed here and now. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And I think that happens a lot. Um, in the world of scripted theater, especially with regional theaters, because they have a subscriber base Mm -hmm. that is predominantly white and 50 plus. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so they want to see musicals that they saw 30 years ago and plays that they saw 30 years ago. And so even when a theater company is doing something a little bit more contemporary, and perhaps even about a really important topic, uh, it still feels dated and a little irrelevant. Um, one of the, there is this play, oh, I'm such a bad gay person for not remembering what it's called. It's by Larry Kramer. It's about the AIDS. It's about the AIDS crisis, um, and it's a phenomenal play, right? It it it's beautiful, and at the time, it shined a light on a uh, misunderstood um, part of of American society. Um, queer, the queer social justice movement has evolved since that time. Mm-hmm. Right. And so but I still see many theaters producing this play 
not that it's important to stay updated on history. And I, I, I think there is something to gain from staging a more historical piece of theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you need to remember that every time you choose to produce a playwright who wrote this play 30 years ago, that's coming at the expense of a new playwright who has a play right now about a issue that is current mm-hmm. that is not getting produced. Um, and I think that perpetuates uh, a culture of exclusion mm. in, in the theater world. All of those ideas kind of like went into my, I don't want to do theater anymore as well. Cause I just noticed that the plays that I was auditioning for and the parts that I was getting they didn't speak to me on a deeper level. And even if I did find them like philosophically, you know, compelling, because mm-hmm. uh, I, I, I can, I can talk about any story and be like engaged in it. I uh, just feel like the intellectual exercise of it. But if I didn't find it like spiritual, me- spiritually meaningful, uh, I didn't want to do it. And I think before then I always felt like I had to do it. You know, I had to do it because this is the industry that I'm in. And, you know, this is sort of like the price that I need to pay if one day I'll be able to do the work that I want to do. And I kind of had this epiphany that I I do the work regularly that I want to do with improv and I'm able to, uh, you know, supplement my income substantially uh, by teaching improv. Mm -hmm. And so let me just focus all of my effort there for this moment and maybe there will be a moment in the future when I pick up a script again. Mm. Um, just to close the, the potential thread, was the play that you're referring to Larry Kramer's Normal Heart by any chance? Normal Heart. Normal uh, Heart. Uh, Thank you for Googling that. I'm ashamed oh, okay. that I didn't know. There's also a movie with Mark Ruffalo um, okay. inspired by the Normal Heart. Um, That's the other thing, too. It's like, why are we producing a play when there's a movie adaptation of it? I don't (laughs) like we could be sharing a new story with the world. Right. This like well-documented story. I don't (laughs) don't get it. I often wondered that because, I mean, uh, people are doing it. Well, I don't know why a regional theater would necessarily do it. The playwright wants it because it's financially beneficial for them to maybe. But uh, I think... When there is something else out it that's like you said, well documented, do we really need it again? <laughs> you know, it, I mean, that was the reason people redid plays maybe twenty years ago is that there there wasn't as much documentation. But now, mm-hmm. I mean, do we really? Are they really yeah. going to be doing Hamilton in high schools or colleges? Probably not, because we can all just watch it on Disney Plus with the original cast. <laughs> I think, I do think they will be doing Hamilton in high schools sooner than later. I, I think that's going to be a staple of the high, high school repertoire for sure. Um, <laughs> oh, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I do think that there is a potentially harmful side effect of doing material that is a little bit dated, which is it subliminally tells the audience that the issue or the theme that this play focuses on is no longer relevant mm. or is it, it's been solved, right? So when you look at the normal heart and you watch it today, 
you a, a contemporary audience member might watch it and think, well, the problem of AIDS has been solved. The problem of AIDS has not been solved uh, for most people. Uh, and the, uh, you know, HIV continues to uh, affect many people's lives detrimentally, and in particular, uh, the Black queer community, Black trans community, um, people of color, um, and people in developing nations, right? So just because we are past this moment of the 1980s and early 1990s, where HIV was, for lack of a better word, uh, colorblind and also like untreatable, totally untreatable. It was sort of like a death sentence. We are past that, Mm -hmm. that moment. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't mean that, right. Yeah. Right. And, and so I think someone might watch it and, and sort of like, it promotes, it promotes a little bit of like complacency or lack of engagement with the the current social justice struggle Mm -hmm. of, Mm -hmm. of the community that it is elevating because it feels like it's putting it on a shelf like a shelf in history yeah we handled that we handled that same thing with like august wilson right august wilson does all these phenomenal plays about the black american experience Mm -hmm. all of the time august wilson is produced uh and potentially it has the impact for audience members of thinking that we're living in a post-racial society hopefully after 2020 it's very clear that, that is not true um, but, but for many people, people it, feel, it still feels true <laughs> right no i mean that's the right. thing the last year there were a number of people who would say like but didn't we deal with racism mm-hmm. when we elected obama and it's like do you really right. think that was the only problem and did you also not hear all the racist saying things about obama when he was president and right. also did you hear anything trump said the last four years because it was still pretty racist um, not every single comment, I'm sure someone would be like, not everything he said was racist, Jason, so your whole point is wrong. Um, right. <laughs> let's have a good faith talk, people. But, um, no, you make a very good point that uh, seeing old things can be good in in the sense of knowing where we were. But if we right. are engaging with those things in such a way where we say, like, that dealt with this. Now let's uh, just go back to quote unquote normal. Right. Then it still dismisses the issue and acts like it's not a problem now. And it very much still affects people now. I mean, yes. people still, f- uh, I was thinking this the other day that queer teenagers are probably feel a lot more open to come out now. Mm-hmm than they did when I was a teenager. However, they still feel the need to come out in a way, and come out in that, that in coming out, it's, it's still very, not traumatic all the time, but I mean, there's a lot of fear in coming out still. And that shows that while we have made some steps forward, this is not a thing we have completely figured out obviously, as a society, if someone even feels the need to come out uh, and, and is afraid to come out. I mean, that, that shows us where we are. Right. Because when you're coming out, you're, you're coming out because you are hiding in the closet and we mm-hmm. still live in a society that makes people feel like they need to hide. 
-hmm. you know, ideally we wouldn't need to hide. And even if when you were a young person or going through puberty or whatever, if you said, you know, I, I'm curious about this, that that isn't sort of, that doesn't mean that you need to like claim that identity for the rest of your life. Right. But we can't, we can't have open and honest conversations about sex and gender, which makes people feel like they need to hide parts of themselves. Right. Um, which is sad. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But you're absolutely right. People do feel more empowered to come out, which is great. And there's more support and there's more representation. Mm-hmm. I was recently watching a, um, a cartoon called Young Justice, which is like the Young Justice League. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was very surprised that a few of the characters were openly queer uh, and that there was like a male on male kiss and there was a female on female kiss and in like a children's show. And I, I, I like teared up watching it because like I, at, if it wasn't clear from our Star Trek conversation was a really big nerd growing up. And I think another reason why I, I felt closeted for so long was because I didn't see any positive representation of queer people on screen you know i wanted to be like batman i wanted to be like han solo i wanted to be like captain picard who all had these like epic heterosexual romances uh and other virtues uh but you never really saw a virtuous heroic epic queer character and so, so to see that in a cartoon um it, it made me so happy and uh really grateful that a younger generation, the generation behind me is going to have those, uh, those, those representations. Yeah. I'm glad too. Um, I'm curious. So you started bird city a few years ago uh, in 2018. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you're a founder and I'm curious how much of what we've been talking about played a role into your starting Bird City? Did it play a role at all? Or is it something that um, is a part of who you are? So therefore, it's how you uh, express improv and, and, and teach improv, but maybe it's not necessarily what made you start the theater. I mean, which, uh, which of those is true? Originally, uh, so in... Late 2017, I applied for the artistic director position of a theater, Mm -hmm. Uh, and I I prepared like so hard for my interview. I outlined like a a concept package for the season. Was talking about you know an educational plan. I did all of this sort of work into you know thinking about how uh, the Baltimore improv community could. Uh, transform and continue to grow. And a lot of those ideas, uh, the the seeds of the ideas for Bird City were sort of laid in uh, that concept design. And I didn't get the position. And I told myself that if I didn't get the position that I would offer myself a consolation prize. And I wasn't sure exactly what that would look like at first. Uh, And it ended up being founding Bird City Improv, just like deciding, you know what, I'm going to do my own thing. Uh, and I also decided to go to Chicago for five weeks to do the IO intensive, mm-hmm. uh, which was amazing. I met so many people from all around the world. Yeah. Um, they still chat with, 
Uh, plus, it was just cool being able to experience that piece of history, uh, mm -hmm. improv history, because, you know, it, uh, right. Truth and Comedy was like the first right. improv book that I read. Horrible book. We're not a really great book. There's so many better <laughs> improv textbooks. There really uh, are now. I mean, at the yeah. at the time of my yeah. reading it, it was the only one. Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> so For long form. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, there are definitely now so many books that I point people towards uh, because yeah. they either explain certain things uh, a little better or they just get to the point a little more or they go a little deeper in other areas. Right. So originally, um, I was just going to have Bird City Improv focus on community workshops and uh, corporate engagement as sort of a way to uh, supplement my income because I still wanted to be supportive of the Baltimore Improv Group. They were uh, experiencing a period of growth at the time, and I didn't want, in my head, I was like, I don't want to be their competition. And I still taught with them and, and performed there. And I wanted to continue to support them. Uh, and, and so I did. And I, I actually regret that decision. I, I regret that decision a lot. Mm. Um, I, I had mentioned the managing director and the education director at the time that I was going to start teaching classes. And, and they said, oh, well, if you start teaching classes with Birds of the Improv, you know, around the city, you know, that I wouldn't be able to um, teach, teach at Baltimore Improv Group anymore. I wouldn't be able to, uh, they, didn't, they didn't explicitly say I wouldn't be able to perform, right? And I think they would have still allowed me to perform. Like, it didn't seem like that sort of, uh, that was being communicated, but it, it felt like I was being pressured to, you know, like continue supporting big. Um, and so that's what, that's what I chose to do. And then in 2020, uh, like many theaters around the country, there was some um, calling out of the powers that be for uh, racial inequity and gender inequity and other forms of inequity. And uh I, I left the organization and so did like 50 plus other people. I think 60 people total uh, left the organization and the High Wire Improv Theater, which is also Baltimore based, was formed. And I kind of went back to the Bird City Improv drawing board and said, how can I, how can I revamp and reimagine this uh, to be more community focused and less about just offering workshops uh and corporate engagements and more about offering um community focused classes and so then in december of 2020 i relaunched uh bird city improv's education program i talked to some other uh local improvisers and some improvisers around the nation too uh who would be interested in teaching and got like a teaching staff together and now we've been offering consistent pay what you choose online classes since since December and, and it's been it's been going really well. So that's the history of Bird City Improv to date. Very cool. When it comes to the to that focus, how you reimagine things, um, what is sort of the purpose uh, beyond I, I understand that it's more community focused, but how did you make it more community focused? Right. 
So I'm thinking like how like how do I strategize this answer? How do I how do I lay out the logic of this answer? I guess I guess I'll just say like the core value is access, right? Mm-hmm. And I've always been really interested in access and even before all of this, I would offer, you know, free community workshops through Bird City Improv, uh, through different community uh, organizations. Um, and so I, I wanted to make sure that it was accessible and that barriers to entry were decreased for anyone that wanted to take an improv class. And so I made sure to prioritize uh, flexible pricing, right? Sort of like a pay what you choose tiered pricing system. It's like, this is the full price ticket. This is flex price one, flex price two. Here are some scholarships if you're BIPOC, scholarships if you're LGBT, scholarship if you just need financial assistance, right? This is just like a free ticket. And so making sure that there are all of those options available for every single one of Bird City Improv's offerings. Uh, I also wanted to make sure that I looked at improv improv pedagogy, right? Like how is improv taught and how can improv be taught in a way that is very inclusive of any individual that walks into that improv space where they feel like they can show up as their complete and whole self. And I think that means upfront, really openly and honestly talking about oppression and talking about problematic humor, not just having it be this occasional topic when someone says something really, really horrible, but talk about it every single class. And so in every single class at every single level, we're talking about consent, uh, consensual touch, uh, consensual topics. Uh, We are talking about stereotypes and how stereotypes show up in humor. We'll look at different sketches or different scenes online, and we'll talk about problematic humor that might be mentioned in this sketch or how this sketch is very socially conscious because it is, it's punching up, it's attacking systems of power. Uh, And like I said, I'm really interested in dramatic improv too. So making sure that drama and like non-comedic styles of performance are incorporated as well into every single class. Uh, so that people can sort of get a more expansive view of what improv can be. And I also wanted to make sure that I was centering anti-oppression, right, in in every single one of my classes, uh, where it's not just like we say, we're inclusive of person X, Y, or Z, or you're welcome, right? It's not just like tolerating, but it's actively combating the systems that oppress certain people, certain communities. And so what that might mean is taking a decolonized look at history and at improv history. So when we talk about the history of improv and sketch, it usually goes something like once upon a time, Viola Spolin, then Del Close, then Keith Johnstone, and then Amy Poehler, the end, right? Like that's sort of like the very brief improv history. And that right. leaves out some, and maybe they mention Commedia dell'arte, which is insane to me because Commedia dell'arte was like in the 1300s. And it's like, are you saying that nothing happened? Nothing happened in which it wasn't the third, I think it was the 1500s, but still hundreds right. of years passed and there wasn't a single innovation in performance. Like, why is this part of your improv history? And also Commedia dell'arte was barely improvised. Uh, I mean, sure, 
they might have improvised the dialogue regularly, but the scenarios, the plot, it was all laid out. So <laughs> that just totally blew my mind. Um, but decolonizing history would say like uh, making sure that we include, um, for instance, like minstrelsy. Minstrelsy is not talked about in improv uh, like ever explicitly. Uh, maybe it will be mentioned when someone says something racist or when a white improviser tries to stir to horrible avail. Um, but typically, like, minstrelsy isn't talked about. And minstrelsy was the very first theatrical art form invented in the United States post-colonization. Mm -hmm. uh, it was from 1830s to 1920, right? That's 90 years. 90 mm -hmm. years, it was very popular. And it didn't just go away after that. Like, minstrelsy right. continued all through the 20th century. Mm -hmm. uh, Billy Crystal was at the Oscars in blackface in 2012, I think. Um, well, yeah, I mean, and and th there's, just to address that part, I mean, because people in the last year have also pointed out uh, Jimmy Fallon uh, as Chris Rock 20 years ago on uh, SNL. Right. And, you know, I was, I was uh, 21 when that, I remember that sketch, and I was 21, and so that means I grew up on seeing Billy Crystal in the 80s doing mm -hmm. Sammy Davis Jr. And that sort of stuff at that time was, I mean, I, a lot of people didn't complain about it. I didn't hear complaints about it. And the reason there weren't complaints about it is, I think partially because like if you, if you hear older black people defend Jimmy Fallon's thing, um, <laughs> what, they, what, what is said is, but that's not a pejorative um, impression of, or that, that's not a pejorative, stereotypical characterization of black people. That was an impression of a specific person. And that's how they were getting away with that for 20, 30 years. But the thing that mm -hmm. people don't realize is, like, people who are 60 grew up seeing real, old-school, manipulative kind of uh, uh, minstrelization or, or blackface. Mm -hmm. But, you know, young people today, people in their 20s, they did not grow up on that at all. They right. didn't even grow up seeing Billy Crystal doing that. So, mm -hmm. of course, it's going to be jarring when they find out about it, when they see this stuff. Because, uh, you know, young people, they have only grown up in a world where that's wrong, where right. any of it is wrong. So, I mean, we have to adjust, right? You know, like, mm -hmm. um, it's fine to acknowledge that one is intentionally malicious and the other is not, but that doesn't mean that the other can't still have a negative impact today that it didn't have at the time. And I think it still, it still points out that that was menstrualization. That's still what that is. That's still like a byproduct of right. blackface. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, while, the intent at the time may have been different. It's still just something we have a different filter on now. Yeah. And I think it's really important that those topics are talked about. If you're going to study humor, if you're going to study performance, mm -hmm. it, we need to be aware of that history um, and teach identity conscious casting, not only in our films and theater but in our improv scenes and in our sketch right like we need to make sure that we are identity conscious uh and we can only you can only change something once you've acknowledged like where you've been and how 
like how history is impacting the present moment. And I, I think there's a disconnect for a lot of people. And so when we teach this really reduced uh, white version of improv history, mm-hmm. um, that's extremely that's extremely problematic. Um, and and so it isn't just like mentioning minstrelsy, right? But it's also making sure that we define improv in a way that is inclusive of the many different lineages of improv. So I right. subscribe to a definition of improv that is finding potential in whatever is readily available. That's the definition that I like the most. I heard someone said something similar to me once. I forget who it was, but I thought, yeah, that's it. <laughs> and I like that because it's inclusive of all different styles um, and especially like Afro-diasporic improvisation, which created literally all of American music, mm-hmm. right? Reggae, hip hop, jazz, uh, R&B, the blues, all of those things have an improvisational origin. And many of those things still have a improvisational uh, aesthetic or sort of like improvisational subgenre within it. Uh, and we don't necessarily make space to talk about those things. Um, I don't even think we make space to talk about how kind of like the sister genre of stand-up comedy can be improvisational or is improvisational uh, mm-hmm. and how historically uh, black people and people of color have found more access to comedy through stand-up mm-hmm. uh, because there wasn't this ridiculous pricing model to get into an improv class. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a really, really great book um, called Community and Inequality in Comedy. Behind the Laughs, that's the main title, Behind mm-hmm. the Laughs. Um, it's by this man named Michael P. Jeffries, and he talks about the uh, the field of comedy in terms of sketch, stand-up, and improv, and how the opportunity structures or the systemic structures within each one of those fields are different, and uh, but all of them skew towards rewarding uh maleness, whiteness, heteronormativity. Uh, And it's not like I just unload all of this stuff like at the beginning of every single improv class. I'm not like, all right, everyone, welcome to history class. But I make sure that throughout throughout the lesson plan, right, as we're talking about different exercises or when different topics come up, I'm making sure that I am prepared and other people are prepared to talk about those topics in a way that is informed and conscientious and that's advocating for a change in the improv and theater community. That's dope and I love it. Um, now we have had a, a really great conversation. It's already at the end of the episode. I don't know how. I'm gonna have to have you on again because I've loved talking to you. Um, Thank you. Now it's time to create something together. Um, okay. and. We've been talking so much about how to be equitable in our comedy and and also the way we run theaters, um, and in particular to people who are subjugated, like just being uh, mindful of that in classes. And there's a lot of talk in comedy uh, where people th- will say something that's really kind of ridiculous, which is like, oh, you can't say anything anymore and stuff like that. And I'm mm-hmm. sure a lot of teachers who've tried to address these matters 
have run into comments like that. So I'm wondering how maybe we could coach instructors or even students to uh, express or receive this kind of information. Is there a way that we can break that down quickly? What I tell my students is the phrase, it's just a joke, is never an acceptable excuse for causing harm. Mm. Now, if you don't understand how harm is being caused, then that's a conversation that we can have, right? Mm. If you don't understand your own privilege, if you don't understand what systemic oppression is, if you don't understand the, the history of a certain abuse in the theater industry and the comedy industry, then we can talk about that and hopefully come to Mm -hmm. uh, a deeper understanding or a new understanding. Right. Um, and I, I, I too hate it when people say it's just a joke because yes, the person was joking. That only speaks to their intent. Like they didn't have a malicious intent, but that doesn't mean it can't still hurt somebody or offend somebody. Right. And it's just a joke is the most simple way that comedians gaslight other people. Yeah. And that is harmful, right? Yeah. I'm if if I if you say something offensive to me and I say, hey Jason, I I think what you said was like on stage, it was like it was kink shaming or it was it was homophobic or it felt kind of sexist, you know, whatever. If I say that to you and you say, ah, oh, Tavis, it's just a joke, mm -hmm. you know, you are trying to make me feel insane mm -hmm. for having a hurt feeling mm -hmm. right you're like it's it's this weird in just a few syllables psychological manipulation that happens between a defensive comedian right and an audience member it was just a joke now that doesn't mean that i think that some people aren't oversensitive and just need to sort of like mm -hmm release their butthole. I think a lot of people need to release their buttholes about a sure. lot of things. There's certain things um, maybe that the, an, a person can adjust to, like maybe they are being a little, uh, a, a lot of things online, people are bringing this stuff up in bad faith. <laughs> They're not mm -hmm. actually trying to have a genuine conversation. Right. Um, but, right. you know, there are people who are genuinely upset or, or offended by things and they're just bringing it to a comedian's attention. Yeah. How would how would you address a another player or yeah. a student who maybe didn't quite understand why they couldn't say something or I think I would first try to understand where they're coming from. I mean, you know, if somebody like when you said, "Ah, it's just a joke." That is like you literally hand wave so that's obviously being dismissive. So if 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 I see that, then I automatically know this person is completely uh, dis dismissing me. Right. Um, but uh, or if someone were to say to me, "I didn't like your joke," um, I wouldn't wave like that. But if if I was the one offended, and I brought it up to somebody, and they say, "Oh, how?" because I wasn't trying to say uh, this uh, offensive thing, the, like the layers that are offensive. I was actually trying to say this other thing and just have a little fun with that. 
And that's mm-hmm. when I can say, okay, I know what your intent was. Um, the way it was approached doesn't express that. Because, I mean, so much of comedy, especially when we're talking about stand-up, where it's like written, and it's, it's all about language that we're using. So I'm not trying to get nitpicky with people, but I am trying to say, you're mm-hmm. trying to communicate something, and it wasn't clear. Mm-hmm. And so I try to come at it that way, where, I, where I'm letting them know that I understand that they're not a bad person, and I'm not calling them a bad person, and I'm not trying yeah. to blast it over the internet so this person can't get another gig. I'm simply right. saying, the thing that you're trying to do, you're not successfully doing. Yes. I think a lot of people have weaponized cancel culture to just shame people. Uh, And cancel culture is about, you know, holding people accountable, right? Which it's supposed to be a good thing, but it's sort of like Mm -hmm. taken on this other form of you don't, you don't see the world exactly as I see it uh, or your ignorance offends me. And so now I'm going to make you feel like a trash human. Yeah. It just Uh, seems like everyone talking (laughs) <laughs> on the internet is whether they're right. for or against it there's a, there's so much bad faith going into yes. the discussion that is really infuriating me these days yes it makes me so I, i'm not a person that engages on social media very often uh especially like in the comment section of a post I, but i see that so many people love doing it and love doing it about really heated topics and it feels like the worst medium to have these very sensitive and vulnerable and consequential conversations. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess it's For good so that they're being reasons. had in any space, but I think like approaching it in that uh, tribal that, cultish sort of way. Yeah. Tribal cultish <laughs> shaming mm-hmm. way. It, 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 it's not great. Um, I feel like there is a defensiveness on all sides almost because there are certain subject matters that are very sensitive for the subjects of those matters. And I can understand when something's brought up and a person is like, Oh, are they just bullying me like everyone else does Mm -hmm. or not, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, then when, comics are called out then mm-hmm. they kind of only see the onslaught of attention and so they're getting defensive about that instead of getting sort of simplifying it and saying like instead of look at it as a million different people saying something to you look at it as this one thing is being said about the comedy bit i did right because that makes it simpler to take in i think emotionally right. people just aren't able to deal with the onslaught and i don't i don't think we're built that way but yeah you have to be able to say okay what did i say what did i mean and how did people take it and if people took it differently than what the words i use directly express then maybe you can say they're wrong <laughs> but chances are you probably expressed it a little off if if people are taking it differently, you know, I mean, I'm very case by case, mm-hmm. but I mean, you, you, a comedian really can't just dismiss it. Um, and it's just, you know, you have comedians that'll say, Oh, it's cancel culture when it's really just someone being held accountable for something legitimately wrong. They did like no gray right. area. 
And then you mm -hmm. have people who are making so much noise and they're mm -hmm. doing it in a bad faith way and they're not actually trying to get someone to address something in an appropriate matter. They're just trying to bash that person. And, and that's right. not helpful either because it doesn't lead that person to understanding because shame doesn't work. Right. And it's, it's, it's like the self exaltation, right? It's like, I'm, I'm raising myself above you. I am morally superior to you. Mm -hmm. And that's like this really grand irony because the idea of superiority is like just at its most essential is what is often causing these abuses and this ignorance and this oppression. It's that feeling of superiority. And so now you're coming into this conversation armed with that same feeling of superiority instead of humbling yourself a little bit, because presumably every single one of us has had many learning moments throughout our lives. Right. You know, I used to, I used to say some horrible things. I used to, I used to do some horrible things. I used to believe some things that I am not proud that I believed. Right. Uh, and I I've mean, there's changed. always something. Yeah. I mean, everybody, right. because it was so culturally considered okay to joke about was to use the R word. Right. Or, Another thing that was really cultural, culturally accepted 20 years ago was to be like, oh, that's gay. Yeah. You know, yeah. like that was, I mean, I've even I heard remember. gay people do that. Yeah. Yeah. And I've heard even gay people do that because it was so culturally acceptable and maybe they were playing into what you were talking about right. early on in the discussion of how they need to code switch so they feel like they belong to the group. But gosh, I mean, I obviously still say... I still say that's gay, but to my other gay friends, as mm -hmm. sort of like this inside joke, yeah. uh, it makes me chuckle, but it also makes me wonder if straight people do the same thing, you know? Um, like, there are different things that maybe people do. I, 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 I know that like black people, we use the N word to each other, you know, and that, right. that's a similar thing. Right. Um, but, but I'm wondering if like, you know, because like I feel comfortable around other gay people. Right. So I might make I might make like a clearly homophobic joke mm -hmm. through sort of like the lens of irony. And then we laugh right. about it. But and right. I feel OK about that because. I I, I was the recipient of mm. that kind of. Uh, you and know, everyone bullying. does that right. everyone does that to some extent in some way yeah they're, they're making effed up jokes out of irony with their best friends because their best mm -hmm. friends know that everyone there knows well this is wrong and i'm kind of making a joke about how wrong it is but i wonder if people actually do know that because i think mm. some people understand that they're not supposed to say it but they don't understand why it's wrong that's, I'm sure that's true for a lot of people. I guess I'm sort of surrounded by good people. So like yeah. they're the ones that I know <laughs> when I do it, um, it's, it's there. We all know right. that like I'm saying yes. something outlandish for the sake of saying something outlandish. And it's kind yes. of like a, like a way to blow off steam. But yeah. I mean, it's also something that we, in a serious discussion, we would never say, you know, like, yeah, good. Um, but yeah, I think, and I think there are some comics who do that, um, mm -hmm. and are, or are trying to do that with just everybody. And, yeah. uh, some people pull it off and some people don't, but mm -hmm. 
Um, you know, I think, kind of to go back to what we were talking about, I think uh, some of this discussion would be the sort of after class at the bar sort of uh, learning experience. But in, yeah. Im- in improv or even if I was teaching a stand-up class, you'd kind of have to mention how difficult it is to do some of these things uh, and it come across the intended way if you don't have any harm. But um, you can tell when a person definitely means harm and (laughs) or is just like does not care. And those times you just need to, I would just call it out flatly Mm -hmm. as wrong. And if they have a problem with it, then I would say, well, quite frankly, it's your problem and you don't need to make it anyone else's problem. But when somebody stumbles into Mm -hmm. it and they didn't mean it and they just thought, oh, I thought this was a benign violation and not like an actual violation. I'm so sorry. That's mm-hmm. the situation. Or even if they're like, wait, but I thought this was acceptable because I've seen comics do it before. That's the time where I think that can get in a little grayer because some people say that and it's really like they're hiding behind something and they're, they actually were malicious. But for the ones right. who were not being malicious, then I would say it's just an adjustment we got to make. <laughs> you know, like it's give yourself mm-hmm. some time to adjust. I'm not saying you're an evil person. I'm not saying right. the thing you did was so evil and everyone in this class needs to uh, get you booted out of here. I'm just saying it's something that you have to adjust to. And it's yeah. an easy adjustment, quite frankly. And it's, it's so important, I think, to have that that atmosphere in an improv classroom or in a rehearsal space. Mm-hmm. Uh for years now, the first lesson of almost every single class I end up teaching is, uh, you know, like, let's embrace failure. Let's celebrate failure because it's a sign that we're learning. And I think for these more hot button topics, it's it's no different, right? Like we can still like, yes, we're going to acknowledge that what you just said might have been harmful or offensive or problematic in some way. We're going to acknowledge that. But we're also going to like embrace and celebrate the fact that we're having a learning moment together. Uh, and then last thought is my friend Blue Cavella Lett, uh, an improviser in Baltimore. I was talking to her the other week and she was talking about the importance of calling someone in before calling them out, mm-hmm. but how a lot of people feel compelled to immediately get on the megaphone or to go on Facebook and call someone out and really that's it's not going to solve things in the long term it might make you feel a little bit better in the moment but in the long term we need to have dialogue with people and difficult dialogue with people which means very compassionately uh and kindly calling someone in and saying hey this is what i saw you do you know i don't think that you meant anything by it but uh, here is why what you just did was problematic and see like what questions do they have? Like, do they get it? Some people get it right away and they're like, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, I can't believe that. Other people, they'll be confused or like you said, they'll say, well, someone else did something very similar. Uh, and then we get to have a deeper conversation around that topic. Um, but just assuming the worst of the person immediately 
uh, and deciding that you are morally superior uh, and that the whole world needs to know about this one mistake that this person made in a very public and shameful forum. I, I just don't get that. I get it, but I don't like it. There it is. Thank you so much for being on the podcast and sharing all this with me. This one means a lot. So thank you. Oh, thank you. I really enjoyed it as well. Thank you so much for having me on. I love that so much. Call someone in before you call them out. So much of calling people out online is performative. It's not allyship. But if you call someone in, you're actually trying to get them to change. Love that so much. Thank you to whoever said that to Tavish and to Tavish for sharing it and everything else that he shared with us today. And big thanks to Brian James O'Connell for connecting us. Be sure to check out Bird City online, birdcityimprov.com, and on Instagram and Facebook, follow them at Bird City Improv. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at There It Is Pod. Follow me on Instagram at Jason Farpix and Twitter at Jason Farjokes. And go to thereitispod.com. We've got a new best blog up. Until next time, be good to each other. The music for the theme song was created by Neil Brooks. The rap was written and performed by Nick Acevedo. The logo for There It Is was created by Jeff Prater. The There It Is podcast is produced by Jason Farr. (laughs) 